Chapter 18 of the Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness, by Horace Kephart. Chapter 18 Axemanship Qualities of Wood and Bark. Before starting to fell a tree, clear away all underbrush and vines that are within reach of the extended axe, overhead, as well as around you. Neglect of this precaution may cripple a man for life. Next, decide in which direction you wish the tree to fall. This will be governed partly by the lay of the ground and the obstacles on it. The tree should fall where it will be easy to log up. A matter of more consequence, however, in thick forest, is to throw the tree in such direction that it will not catch and hang on one of its neighbors, obliging you to fell the latter also. Felling a tree. Now, suppose that you decide to throw the tree to the south. Cut a kerf or notch on the south side of the tree, halfway through the trunk, as shown in A in Figure 1, Legend to Figure 15, illustrating how to cut a tree and split a log. In making this cut, you should not start it so narrow that you will soon find yourself wedging your axe. Make a nick at C as a guide, then another at D, which should be as far above C as the intended depth of the cut CE. Then chop out your kerf, making as big chips as you can. To do this, chop alternately at the notches D and C, and split out the block between with a downward blow of the axe. A green axeman is known by the finely minced chips and haggled stump that he leaves. Beginners invariably overexert themselves in chopping and are soon blown. An accurate stroke counts for much more than a heavy blundering one. A good chopper lands one blow exactly on top of the other with the precision and regularity of a machine. He chops slowly but rhythmically and puts little more effort into striking than he does into lifting his axe for the blow. Trying to sink the axe deeply at every stroke is about the hardest work that a man can do and it spoils accuracy if the tree is of such wood as is easy to cut make the cut c e as nearly square across the butt as you can to do this keep the hand that holds the hilt of the axe helve well down but if the tree is hard and stubborn to fell or if you are rustling firewood in a hurry it is easier to make this cut in a slanting direction so as not to chop squarely across the grain having finished this south kerf which is two-thirds of the labor of felling the tree. Now begin the opposite one, B, at a point three or four inches higher than the other. By studying the diagram and taking into account the tree's great weight, you can see why this method will infallibly throw the tree to the south, if it stands anywhere near perpendicular, and if there is not a strong wind blowing. Comparatively few blows are needed here. When the tree begins to crack, step to one side, never jump in a direction opposite that in which the tree falls many a man has been killed in that way sometimes a falling tree striking against one of its neighbors shoots backward from the stump like lightning look out too for shattered limbs if a tree leans in the wrong direction for your purpose insert a billet of wood in the kerf b and drive a wedge or two above it in the direction of the kerf a tree weighing many tons can be forced to fall in any desired direction by the proper use of wedges. And a good axeman in open woods can throw a tree with such accuracy 
as to drive a stake previously stuck in the ground at an agreed position he can even do this when a considerable wind is blowing by watching the sway of the tree and striking his final blow at the right moment logging up when the tree is down and you go to log it make the outside chip not less in length than the diameter of the log this will seem absurdly long until you have cut a log in two with a narrow cut you could be wedging your axe before you were nearly half through and your work would be harder anyway because you would be cutting more nearly across the grain of the wood instead of diagonally with it in making these side cuts be sure to make them perpendicular to the ground otherwise you will soon find that the upper side of the log is cut away but that you have no way of getting at the underside when cutting close to the ground look out for pebbles a nick in the axe will make your work doubly hard before filling a tree on stony ground it is well worth while to place a small log across the way for the butt of the tree to fall on so as to keep it off the ground this will also make it easier to log up speaking of nicks in the axe beware how you cut into hemlock knots in trimming limbs close to a hemlock truck you can ruin the best steel that ever was made in logging up a large tree it is necessary for the axeman to stand on the prostrate trunk with his legs well apart and to cut down between his feet this to a beginner looks like a risky performance but i have seen one of my woodland neighbors who professes to be only a trifling hand with an axe stand on a slender tree trunk that was balanced about ten feet over a gulch whack away between his feet with the trunk swaying several inches at every stroke nor did he step over on the main trunk until two or three light blows sufficed to cut the log free but such a performance is tame compared with the feats of axemanship that regular choppers and river drivers do every day as a mere matter of course splitting timber certain woods such as cedar can be riven into serviceable boards with no other tool than an axe but in general if one has much splitting to do he should make a mole and some gluts steel wedges being presumably unobtainable when one has no auger with which to bore a hole for the handle a serviceable mole can be made in club shape beech oak and hickory are good materials but any hardwood that does not splinter easily will do choose a sapling about five inches thick at the butt not counting the bark dig a little below the surface of the ground and cut the sapling off where the stools of the roots begin the wood is very tough here and this is to be used for the large end of the mole which should be about ten inches long from this forward shave down the handle which should be twenty inches long thus balanced the mole will not jar one's hands gluts are simply wooden wedges the best woods for them are dogwood and hornbeam or ironwood as they are very hard and tough even when green chop a sapling of suitable thickness and make one end wedge-shaped then cut it off square at the top and so continue until you have all the gluts you want it takes no mean skill to chop and shave a glut to a tree wedge shape and much depends upon getting the angles and surfaces correctly proportioned a novice is apt to make a glut too short and thick the gluts may well be fire hardened by placing them in hot ashes until the sap has been driven out but leaving the surface only slightly charred to split a log start the wedges in the smaller or top end of the log if there is a crack or large check at the right place drive two wedges into it as the log will probably split best that way if not then with the axe in one hand and mole in the other make a crack across the end of the log 
drive the wedges home, and others into the crack along the side of the log. The general rule in riving rails is to split a stick through the middle, then quarter it, then split the quarters through the middle, and so on until the required dimensions are reached. Figure 2 shows, for example, the method of splitting rails from a large log. The quarter of log is first halved along the line AB. Then the rail BCD is split off. The remaining section is then halved as before. The rails are split off in the direction EF, and others are split from the remaining segments, or the method shown in the lower eighth is used according to the dimensions required. Figure 3 shows how clapboards, or the rough shingles called shakes, are riven. For splitting such wide, thin pieces, a tool called a fro is used, it being a heavy steel blade with a wooden handle set at right angles. A cut of the desired length is sawed from the log and stood on end. It may then be quartered, and from each quarter the shakes may be split off by placing the edge of the fro on the end of the billet and striking it with a mallet. The usual way, however, is to split around, but not through the core, detaching the latter now and then by the axe at right angles to the splits. The heart of oak, for example, is so tough that it would be impracticable to continue the split through the core. In splitting puncheons, the log is merely halved, and the round side left as it is, being turned under in flooring. With some woods, however, it is not difficult to rive out slabs that are flat on both sides by working under the method shown in Figure 4. Much depends upon the right selection of wood for the purpose at hand. For instance, it would be worse than useless to try to split shingles from cherry, because it splits irregularly, or from hemlock, for it splits spirally, or from sour gum, tupelo, or winged elm, because they cannot be split at all. Much depends, though, upon the individual tree. A timberman can tell whether a tree will split well or not by merely scanning the bark. If the ridges and furrows of the bark run straight up and down in the main, the wood will have a corresponding straight grain. But if they are spiral, the wood will split waney, or not at all. Peculiarities of soil and climate also affect the riving qualities of wood. In the southern mountains, for example, one may see thousands of shingles and palings or clapboards split from hemlock even up to the length of four or five feet. To make a puncheon out of a log that will not split straight, cut deep notches along one side, one after the other, and of uniform depth, like saw teeth. Then split or hew off the remaining blocks, until the log is flattened as desired. Qualities of Wood The working qualities of common woods ought to be known by everyone who has occasion to use timber, and especially by a woodsman who may at any time be driven to shifts in which a mistake in choosing material may have disagreeable consequences. A few simple tables are here given, which, it is hoped, may be of assistance. Only common native trees are included. The data refer to the seasoned wood only, except where green is specified. Such tables might easily be extended, but mine are confined to the qualities of most account to campers and explorers and to trees native to the regions north of Georgia and east of the Rocky Mountains. Very hard woods. Osage orange, hardest. Dogwood. Black haw. Yellow locust. Post oak. Overcup oak. Sugar maple. Crabapple. Persimmon. Hickory. Serviceberry. Blackjack oak. Chestnut oak. Mountain laurel. Winged elm. Hardwoods. 
other oaks hornbeam ash elm cherry beech tupelo redbud red maple holly sycamore yellow pine pecan black birch hackberry plum sourwood sour gum walnut silver maple mulberry honey locust yellow birch very soft woods spruce balsam poplar white pine pawpaw aspen balsam fir catawpa buckeye basswood arbor vitae softest parenthesis common woods not mentioned above or of medium softness close parenthesis very strong woods yellow locust yellow birch shingle oak shellbark hickory yellow pine hornbeam serviceberry big bud hickory basket oak pignut hickory chestnut oak black birch spanish oak sugar maple beech osage orange bitternut hickory strong woods other oaks paper birch silver maple red birch dogwood ash persimmon plum white elm cherry red pine rock elm water locust chinquapin honey locust tamarack loblolly pine slippery elm black walnut sour gum red maple very stiff woods yellow birch sugar maple spanish oak hornbeam paper birch tamarack yellow pine black birch shellbark hickory overcup oak yellow locust beech very tough woods beech osage orange water oak tupelo tough woods black ash basswood yellow birch dogwood sour gum white ash paper birch cottonwood elm hickory hornbeam basket oak overcup oak yellow pine black walnut liquid amber burr oak swamp white oak tamarack woods that split easily arbivitae basswood cedar chestnut slippery elm green hackberry red oak the soft pines spruce ash beech when green white birch black birch green dogwood green balsam fir basket oak white oak woods difficult to split blue ash seasoned buckeye white elm sour gum liquid amber sugar maple seasoned tupelo unwedgeable box elder wild cherry winged elm unwedgeable hemlock honey locust seasoned sycamore woods that separate easily into thin layers black ash basket oak flexible pliable woods basswood hackberry redbud witch hazel elm big bud hickory yellow poplar springy woods black ash hickory honey locust white oak serviceberry white ash hornbeam yellow locust osage orange spruce woods easily wrought basswood paper birch buckeye catalpa cherry cottonwood hackberry silver maple yellow poplar black birch red birch butternut cedar chestnut cypress red maple white pine black walnut woods liable to check in seasoning beech chestnut dogwood 
hickory except shellbark yellow locust sassafras black walnut white birch crabapple sour gum hornbeam most oaks sycamore woods liable to shrink and warp chestnut white elm hemlock liquid amber loblolly pine yellow poplar cottonwood sour gum shellbark hickory pin oak sycamore woods difficult to season beech sour gum red oak water oak cottonwood sugar maple rock chestnut oak osage orange woods that can be obtained in wide boards free from knots basswood cypress cottonwood yellow poplar woods durable in soil water and weather arbivitae catalpa cherry cucumber slippery elm juniper honey locust mulberry chestnut oak post oak swamp white oak osage orange pitch pine tamarack butternut chestnut cedar cypress hop hornbeam kentucky coffee tree yellow locust burr oak overcup oak rock chestnut oak white oak yellow pine long-leaved sassafras black walnut perishable woods white birch box elder hackberry blackjack oak spanish oak loblolly pine serviceberry box elder silver maple pin oak water oak the poplars sycamore sapwood is more liable to decay than heartwood naturally these are only general guides trees have their individual peculiarities just as people have woods for special purposes the best woods for dugouts are butternut cedar chestnut cucumber cypress sassafras yellow poplar and black walnut those best for the ribs and frames of canoes and boats are arbivitae white cedar elm sour gum oak gray pine spruce and tamarack depending on locality and available species for sheathing arbivitae paper birch bark cedar cypress slippery elm bark pignut hickory bark mulberry white pine sassafras spruce bark tamarack for bottoms for oars and paddles ash and spruce one will choose of course according to what is available on the spot for snowshoe bows black ash is best for ski birch for toboggans oak ash birch beech for axe helves hickory or if from greenwood hornbeam for hand spikes green hornbeam dogwood hickory serviceberry birch maple for bowls or trenchers black ash cucumber yellow poplar sassafras maple sycamore for tree nails yellow locust burr oak mulberry for gun stocks black walnut cherry sugar maple red maple yellow wood for fishing rods osage orange ash serviceberry for slender frames etc ash yellow birch slippery elm hickory oak for runners sourwood for any such purpose as the wheel hub requiring toughness and strength yellow birch dogwood rock elm winged elm sour gum liquid amber honey locust yellow locust post oak osage orange large tupelo for anything requiring a very hard and close-grained wood beech birch dogwood rock elm slippery elm winged elm hickory holly hornbeam laurel 
locust, maple, osage orange, persimmon, plum, serviceberry, thorn. In building a log cabin, choose timber that is not only straight, but light in weight, and, for the first course of logs at least, pick out wood that will not rot easily when in contact with the ground. Such are easily determined by using the tables given here. Similarly, proper wood for shingles may be selected by consulting the tables for a wood that is both easy to split and durable. For a raft, pick out, if you can find them, dry logs of any very light wood. Some timbers, such as black walnut and sour gum, will not float at all when green. The weight of seasoned wood is no criterion of the weight of the green wood. For example, the drier wood of the sequoia or big tree of California is lighter than white pine, but a freshly cut log of it full of sap will scarcely float in water. Quick seasoning. Green wood can quickly be seasoned by heating it in the embers of the campfire till the sap sizzles out. The old English word for such treatment of wood was beething. This also makes the wood, for the time being, so pliable that it can be bent into any required shape, or it can be straightened by hanging a weight from one end, or by fastening it to a straight form. The application of heat, without deep charring, also hardens green wood and makes it more durable. Bending wood. Ordinarily, small pieces of green wood can be bent to a required form by merely soaking the pieces for two or three days in water. But if it is desired that they should retain their new shape, they should be steamed. Small pieces can be merely immersed in a kettle of hot water. Large ones may be steamed in a trench, partly filled with water, by throwing red-hot stones into it. Then drive stout stakes into the ground in the outline desired, and bend the suppled wood over these stakes, with small sticks underneath, to keep the wood from contact with the ground, that it may dry more readily. If a simple bow shape is all that is wanted, it can be secured by merely sticking the two ends of the wood into the ground and letting the bow stand upright to dry. Wedging to wedge a wooden pin in an auger hole, as in building a raft, split the top of the pin before driving, then seat it, and drive in a small wedge. This is called by raftsmen, quote, witch wedging, end quote. By the way, a wedge of soft wood will hold better in an axe helve, for instance, than one of hard wood. When one has no auger, he can readily drive hard wood pins, sharpened at the point or wedge-shaped into softwood logs in the same way that he would drive iron spikes. Barking Trees The bark of the following trees makes good roofs and temporary shelters, and is useful for many other purposes. Paper birch, basswood, buckeye, elm, hickory, spruce, hemlock, chestnut, balsam fir, white ash, cottonwood. Cedar bark may do, but it is very inflammable. It is only when the sap is up, spring and summer, that bark will peel freely, although elm peels through eight months of the year, and some basswood trees can be found that will peel even in winter. But as a rule, if one wishes to strip bark in cold weather, he will have to roast a log carefully, without burning the outside. Remember that barking a tree generally kills it, and that it is illegal in some regions, as in the Adirondacks. In the real wilderness, however, bark has so many uses, that a knowledge of how to select and manipulate it is one of the essentials of a woodsman's education. Before stripping bark, select a large tree with smooth and faultless trunk. If it is birch, choose one with bark that is thick and with few and small eyes. For a temporary roof, it will be enough merely to skin the bark off in long strips, 
eight or ten inches wide, and lay them overlapping, with alternately the convex and concave sides out. But for nicer jobs the bark must be flattened, and the rough outer bark, except in case of birch, must be removed, only the tough, fibrous, soft inner bark being used. For rough work the outer bark may be simply rossed off with a hatchet, but for nice jobs the bark should be treated as described below. If only a moderate-sized sheet is needed, the tree may not have to be felled. First, girdle the tree, just above the swell of the butt, by cutting through into the sapwood. Then, girdle it again, up high as you can reach. Connect these two rings by a vertical slit through the bark. Now, cut into wedge shape the larger end of a four-foot length of sapling. This is your spud, or barking tool. With it, gently work the bark free along one edge of the upright slit, and thus proceed around the tree till the whole sheet falls off. If the girdles are five feet apart, a tree two feet in diameter will thus yield a sheet about five by six and a half feet, and a three-foot tree will afford one five by nine and a half feet. The bark is laid on the ground for a few days to dry in the sun, and is then soaked in water, which supples it and makes the inner bark easy to remove from the outer. Bark Utensils I have no space in which to describe all the utensils, etc., can be made from bark. One or two simple examples must suffice. A tray or trough that will hold liquids is quickly made by rossing off the outer bark from the ends of a sheet of suitable size, but leaving it on the middle part to stiffen the vessel. The rossed ends are then folded over in several overlaying laps, gathered up somewhat in the shape of a canoe's bow and stern, and tied with bark straps. To make a dipper, take a forked stick of green wood, heat the fork, bend and bind it into bow form, and then sew the bark to it with rootlets or bark twine. Or a slender straight stick can similarly be bent into shape for a frame. A rough and ready dipper is made in three minutes as shown in the illustration. A sheet of bark, say, eight by ten inches, is trimmed to spade shape folded lengthwise, opened out, the second finger placed behind A, the fold upward made as shown, and a split stick added as handle. The sewed seams of bark buckets, etc., are closed with a mixture of pine resin or spruce gum and grease or oil laid on while hot, and the upper edges are stiffened with hoops or withes of pliable wood. Birch, elm, and basswood are the best barks to use. A bark bucket for carrying fish or berries is quickly made by taking from a young poplar, for example, a sheet of bark twice as long as the intended depth of bucket. Fold this through the middle. Pass a bark strap through slits at four upper corners to hold the sides together. The concavity of the bark holds the edges together without sewing. Add a bark sling strap. Bast ropes and twine, straps, fish stringers, etc., are made from the whole bark of pawpaw, leatherwood, remarkably strong, and hickory shoots. Very good ropes and twine can be made from the fibers of the inner bark of the slippery, white, and winged elms, the pignut and other hickories, and buckeye, red cedar, yellow locust, red mulberry, and osage orange. One who has not examined the finished work would scarce believe what strong, soft, and durable cordage, matting, braided tump lines, and even thread, fishnets, and garments can be made from such material by proper manipulation. The Indians first separate the bark in long strips, remove the woody outer layer, and then boil it in a lye of sifted wood ashes and water, which softens the fiber so it can be manipulated without breaking. 
after it is dried it can be separated into small filaments by pounding the strings running with the grain for several feet slippery elm especially makes a pliable rope soft to the touch it can be closely braided and is very durable if the woody splinters and hard fragments have not been entirely removed by pounding the shoulder blade of a deer is fastened to an upright post an inch hole is drilled through it and bunches of the boiled bark are pulled backward and forward through the hole the filaments are then pulled up in hanks and hung aside for use being boiled to supple them when needed bark twine is made by holding in the left hand one end of the fibre as it is pulled from the hank and separating it into two parts which are laid across the thigh the palm of the right hand is then rolled forward over both so as tightly to twist the pair of strands when they are permitted to unite and twist into a cord the left hand drawing it away is completed other strands are twisted in to make the length the cord desired twine and thread are made from bark of young sprouts the bast or inner rind of basswood linden makes a good rope more than a century ago two indians whose canoe had drifted while they were in a drunken sleep upon goat island between the american and canadian falls of niagara let themselves down over the face of the cliff by a rope that they had made from basswood bark and thus escaped from what seemed to onlookers as certain death by starvation mulberry and osage orange bast yield a fine white flax-like fibre that used to be spun by squaws to the thickness of pack-thread and then woven into garments the inner bark of indian hemp parenthesis apocinum cannabinum close parenthesis collected in the fall is soft silky and exceedingly strong the woody stems are first soaked in water then the bast with bark adhering is easily removed after which the bark is washed off leaving the yellow-brown fibre ready to be picked apart and used a rope made from it is stronger and keeps longer in water than one made from common hemp it was formerly used by the indians almost all over the continent not only for ropes but for nets threads and garments the fibres of the nettle were also similarly used in the southern appalachians it is not many years since the mountain white women used to make bed cords perhaps you know how strong such cords must be by twisting or plaiting together long slender splits of hickory wood preferably mocker nut that they suppled by soaking such bed cords are in use to this day root and vine cordage the remarkably tough and pliable rootlets of white spruce about the size of a quill when barked split and suppled in water are used by indians to stitch together the bark plates of their birch canoes the seams being smeared with the resin that exudes from the tree also for sewing up bark tents and utensils that will hold water the finely divided roots are called by northern indians watab or watape twine and stout cords are also made of this material strands for fish nets being sometimes made as much as fifty yards in length the old-time indians used to say that bark cords were better than hemp ropes as they did not rot so quickly from alternate wetting and drying nor were they so harsh and kinky but when damped they became supple as leather quote, our bast cords unquote, they said quote, are always rather greasy in the water and slip more easily through our hands nor do they cut the skin like your ropes when anything has to be pulled lastly they feel rather warmer in winter end quote the fibres of tamarack roots and of hemlock cedar and cottonwood are similarly used grapevine rope is made in a manner similar to bark rope the american wisteria 
Crania frutescens is so tenacious and supple that it was formerly used in the lower Mississippi for boats' cables. It can be knotted with ease. The long, tough rootstocks of sedge or sawgrass are much used by our Indians as substitutes for twine. Baskets made of them are the strongest, most durable, and costliest of all the indigenous products of the aboriginal basket maker. The fiber is strongest when well moistened. A favorite basket plant of the Apaches and Navajos is the ill-scented sumac or skunk bush, parenthesis, Rus trilobata, close parenthesis, which is common from Illinois westward. The twigs are soaked in water, scraped, and then split. Baskets of this material are so made that they will hold water when they are often used to cook in, by dropping hot stones in the water. Withes a southern shrub, the suckle-jap, parenthesis, berchemia scandens, close parenthesis, makes good withes. The fibers of the redbud tree are said by basket-makers to equal in strength those of palm or bamboo. For such purposes basket-making, withes should be gathered in spring or early summer, when the wood is full of sap and pliable. If the material is to be kept for some time before weaving, it should be buried in the ground to keep it fresh. In any case, a good soaking is necessary, and the work should be done when the withes are still wet and soft. Other good woods for withes are leatherwood, liquid amber, willow, and witch hazel. Large withes for binding rails, raft logs, etc., are made from tall shoots of hickory or other tough wood by twisting at one end with the hands until the fiber separates into strands, making the withe pliable so that it can be knotted. A sapling as thick as one's wrist can be twisted in this way. To fasten a withe to a log, chop a notch in the log, making it a little wider at the bottom than at the top. Trim the butt of the sapling to fit it loosely, and drive a wedge in alongside of it, then twist. The best hoops are made from hickory, white or black ash, birch, alder, arbor vitae, cedar, dogwood. Splints Splints are easily made from slippery elm, for instance, by taking saplings or limbs three or four inches in diameter, and hammering them with a wooden mallet until the individual layers of wood are detached from those underneath, then cutting these into thin, narrow strips. The strips are kept in coils until wanted for use, and then are soaked. Black ash and basket oak, when green, separate easily into thin sheets or ribbons along the line of each annual ring of growth, when beaten with mallets. The Indians, in making splint baskets, cut the wood into sticks as wide along the rings as the splints are to be, and perhaps two inches thick. These are then bent sharply in the plane of the radius of the rings, when they part into thin strips, nearly or quite as many of them as there are rings of growth. Fitting axe helves. A broken axe helve is a not uncommon accident in the woods, and a very serious one until a new helve is made and fitted. Now it often happens that the stub of old handle cannot be removed by ordinary means. It must be burnt out. To do this without drawing the temper out of the steel might seem impracticable, but the thing is as simple as rolling off a log when you see it done. Pick out a spot where the earth is free from stones and pebbles, and drive the blade of the axe into the ground up to the eye. Then build a fire around the axe head. That is all. If the axe is double-bitted, dig a little trench about six inches deep and the width of the axe eye, or a little more. Lay the axe flat over it, cover both blades with two inches of earth, and build a small fire on top. In making a new axe helve, 
do not bother to make a crooked one like the store pattern thousands of expert axemen use from preference straight handles in their axes single-bitted axes at that i have seen such handles full four feet long to be used chiefly in logging up big trees two feet eight inches is a good length for ordinary chopping to smooth any article made of wood when you have no sandpaper use loose sand in a piece of buckskin a vice to make a vice cut a good-sized hardwood sapling leave a square-topped stump of convenient height split the stump through the middle as far as necessary trim the upper part if needful for the purpose then about eighteen inches from the top lash the stump firmly with a rope and twist it tight with a stick like a tourniquet open the split with wedges insert the article to be held knock out the wedges and there you are for a cold weather camp a log hut is more comfortable than any tent and it is much more secure at all times the saving in firewood over an open camp is immense for it takes a good-sized tree to keep up a good all-night fire before a lean-to cabins if you intend to build a cabin take along either a cross-cut saw and a fro for splitting shingles or a roll of roofing paper a bark roof is only fit for a temporary lodge as it soon gets leaky tatterdemalion and inflammable to hold a shingled roof in place if you have no nails overlap the shakes like ordinary shingles but with several inches more quote, to the weather end quote, and fasten them down with binders or weight logs these are poles laid over the butts of the shakes and immediately over the stringers of the roof the ends of binders and stringers being withed tightly together for details in the construction of log cabins and many designs from the rudest to large clubhouses see wick's book log cabins and cottages parenthesis forest and stream publishing company new york close parenthesis a cabin without a window is a cheerless fusty den and there is seldom good excuse for such shiftlessness if you cannot carry window panes and a knock-down sash into the woods take along some oiled paper or translucent parchment a recipe for the latter is given in the next chapter mortar for chinking between logs moss mixed with clay or tenacious mud is sufficient but this should not be used in a chimney for such purpose mix thoroughly blue clay and wet sand this makes a particularly hard and durable cement but yellow clay will do a tenacious mortar may be made from the slime of a swamp mixed with deer's hair feathers etc better however is one made by pounding mussel shells to a fine powder mixing this with clay freed from pebbles pouring water over the mass kneading and then letting the fire do the rest charcoal this may be as good a place as any in which to describe some rough and ready but effective ways of procuring charcoal and lime for the former dig a pit five feet square by three feet deep and build a fire in it keep adding fuel as the fire burns down until the pit is almost full of embers then pile on sticks of uniform size until the pile stands a foot above the ground whereupon shovel over it the earth that was dug out of the pit after letting the pit cool for twenty-four hours it will be found nearly full of charcoal lime lime can be made without much trouble wherever there is limestone by a process similar to that of burning charcoal if you want enough of it to mix mortar for a cabin chimney enclose a circular space of five feet diameter by a rude stone wall three feet high cover the bottom of this enclosure with brush to facilitate kindling the kiln 
then fill with alternate layers of dry hardwood and limestone broken into moderate sized pieces piling the top into conical form light the pile and when it is well going cover the top with sods to make the calcination slow and regular keep it going for two days and nights end of chapter eighteen read by gail timmerman vaughan